Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Michael Cunningham and Adam Wheeler. Hello. Hey. So today we're talking about the eighth prompt in the Books and Bites challenge, a book told from a child's perspective. Adam, I think this prompt was your idea. So do you want to tell us what what yeah. prompted your prompt? This sounds like <laughs> some of my nonsense. Yes. Honestly, the thing that prompted it for me was the book that I am featuring. Um, I read Imaginary Friend by Stephen Chosky, and it was really good. Um, and it was a horror story from a very unique perspective. Though it is adult fiction, it uh, told it from a a different perspective and in a way that um, you, you couldn't really have written it if it was a children's story. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's just a, it's a different way for, for us to think about uh, the way people experience things and build some empathy for, for the, for the young folks. I think um, it creates some interesting problems for the writer too in a lot of lists I found of books that were supposedly from the child's point of view it seemed like they were actually they were from an adult looking back on their childhood's point of view which to me is not the same thing um, because you're then you're still filtered through an adult mind and sticking very closely to a child's point of view, you're going to have to think more about what a child, how a child would actually see it and, and what they would know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like in, in this one, there's, I believe there's a kid who's going through his parents are going through a divorce and, you know, it's, it's told from a third person perspective, but it still goes through the process of how a kid would think about it as like mm-hmm. they're encountering a new concept and they really don't know what to think of an adult problem like that. It's, it's just new. Yeah. And I think, I think it can still be from a child's point of view in third person, but it is kind of tricky to find books that fit this theme. Although of yeah. course we're not going to, we're not going to test you. So, um, <laughs> so just submit what you think works. That's, that's fine with us. Yeah. Um, what about you, Michael? How did, how did you find picking books for this challenge? It was a bit of a challenge. <laughs> um, Challenging challenge. It was. Um, yeah. It was kind of hard to find a, especially adult books, you know, from a child's perspective. So I went back to the young adult section to find one. Yeah, that is, that is a good pro tip that (laughs) (laughs) that books that are in the children's section or the teen section are likely going to be um, um, more likely to fit this theme than a book from the adult section. Yeah. So, <laughs> my first choice for this month is Imaginary Friend, a, a slow-crawling horror novel by Stephen Chosky, author of The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Uh, Chosky's sense of horror for this story is through a building's sense of unease based on the question, what is an imaginary friend? 
we all we uh, visit all the possible stops, including figments of imagination, supernatural entities, and symptoms of mental disorders. Um, just to name a few. Young elementary student Christopher Reese is on a sudden move with his mother Kate to flee her abusive boyfriend and start a new life in Millgrove, Pennsylvania. Uh, Kate and Christopher struggle to find food and shelter, but they look out for each other. Uh, Kate maintains a strained but loving relationship with her son while balancing transiency, poverty, and her son's poor academic performance. Uh, While Christopher struggles with his reading, he's built a strong sense of imagination. Uh, Maybe the first time we see this in action is when Christopher starts cloud gazing while waiting on one of his mother's job interviews to end. There's usual animals and shapes, you know, horses or whatever. Uh, (laughs) But there is a handsome, pretty face made of clouds smiling at him. No bigs. It's just a cloud, but it's kind of cool. And really soon, Christopher has moved on to an imaginary baseball scene, and it doesn't matter. Um, Christopher uh, makes the usual connections at his new elementary school, starting right off by finding both a commiserating friend and a bully, because of course, uh, he takes remedial reading instruction with a school's librarian, uh, which puts him at school a bit after the end of the school day. Unfortunately, his mom isn't allowed to leave work. She did get the job uh, on time to pick him up. So he waits and he imagines. It's not long before he catches a familiar face in the clouds. That same face that he'd seen waiting through his mom's interview. Uh, Day after day, the face is there, in different sizes and places, watching and smiling. Um, That is, until the day he talked to the cloud, and the cloud responded. Um, It didn't talk, but it did respond. Uh, And he followed its smiling face into the Mission Street woods. Uh, Christopher was missing for six days, and he wasn't the same when he came back. We're just in the beginning, too. Other characters like the hissing lady, the nice man, and a host of menacing entities make appearances with unsettling situations based around childhood fears. Coming to terms with imperfection in adults and anxieties based on various kinds of abuse. Uh, Imaginary Friend is in third-person perspective and follows a number of characters throughout the community, all being affected in different ways. However, however, (laughs) Christopher is clearly the protagonist, which makes this a book from a child's perspective, in my opinion. Um, I listened to this title on audio during my commutes and was enthralled by the deeply unsettling story. While some older teens may feel just fine with this book, it's it's a recommendation that lands squarely as an adult book, and it is marketed as an adult book. Um, so the same way that some kids are fine reading Stephen King's It, uh, those kids could read this. Um, so Michael could have read this. Michael could have read this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, probably would have been tame for Michael as a kid. Yeah, I mean, compared to it, it is tame. <laughs> Depending on what we're talking about, it's still really violent. Um, I believe there were subjects that some readers or listeners would find traumatic, including instances of self-harm and abuse. That said, anyone who wants to read Imaginary Friend by Stephen Chosky can find it in multiple formats So JCPL. For a uh, for a tasty treat, uh, accompany the uncomfortable juxtaposition of creativity and anxiety in imaginary friend with a dessert uh, that is 
that uh, satisfyingly mixes sweet, tart, and savory flavors. A plum time sundae. Ooh. You'll be plum out of time by the time you finish it. Uh, <laughs> it's a big book. Need, uh, yeah. <laughs> all you need is butter, uh, fresh thyme, plums, and sugar to make a wonderfully unusual ice cream topping. Find this recipe in The Forest Feast. Simple vegetarian recipes from My Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods is also a great horror movie, by the way. Um, <laughs> but the book, the book I just talked about is by Aaron Gleason, and it's available in hard copy at JCPL. That sounds really good. I I used mm-hmm. to, I had a, um, someone gave me some plum jam, and that was really good on ice cream. So mm-hmm. I can imagine that this would be just as tasty. Yeah, it's got like this combination of sweetness and tartness plum jam does that hits mm-hmm. my tongue in like a really fun, sharp way. I love it. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, I have seen the perks of being a wallflower on a lot of lists of being told from a child narrator. Have you read that one too? Did you say? I haven't read it. Um, I, I, I believe it is a teen book. Um, mm-hmm. I should know more about it, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's okay. I just um, thought you might, um, but that sounds good. Thanks. Yeah. My suggestion this month is Clown in a Cornfield by Adam Cesar. This young adult novel follows Quinn Maybrook as she moves with her father from Philadelphia to the small town of Kettle Springs, Missouri, after her mother tragically passes away. He takes over as the town's doctor and moves into his predecessor's house after the previous one abruptly leaves. As Quinn unpacks in her room, she notices a derelict factory with a picture of a clown painted on its side that sits behind the house out past an ocean of cornstalks, a factory that was once vital to the town. The next day at school, being the new kid in a small town, she finds herself on the outside looking in, but manages to endear herself quickly to a clique of popular kids after getting sent to detention with them, a group that has a penchant for mischief, she learns. Quinn also finds out that the leader of the group is Cole Hill, whose father owns Baypen, the shuttered corn syrup factory that sits behind her house, and whose mascot is Frendo the Clown, which has subsequently been adopted as the town's mascot. Quinn finds out that one of the recent shenanigans the group got into ended up burning up a large portion of the empty factory, drawing the wrath of the town, since they were convinced Cole's father was set to reopen the factory. And when Quinn tags along with Cole and his friends as they play a prank that goes off the rails during the Founders Day Parade, the tension between the teens and adults reaches a boiling point, since the town's elders were pinning their hopes of the parade changing Mr. Hill's mind to reopen and rebuild Bay Pen. After the parade, Quinn is invited to join Cole and his friends at a party in a secluded cornfield. Mm -mm -mm. And she's completely unaware that a night of dancing and fun is about to turn into a night of blood and horror and clowns. <laughs> and while this book appears to just be nothing more than a retro slasher on the surface, it's deceptively more than, than that if you look a little closer, especially at the generational unrest between the town's teens and adults, who lay the blame for the town's misfortune solely at the feet of the teens for the town's successful attempts to, quote, 
make Kettle Springs great again, unquote. While the copious amounts of blood and horror contained in its pages, this book would appeal to older teens and definitely adults with its classic retro slasher vibes. And just announced last week, a sequel is due out next year that picks up a year later after the events of the first book. So the second book is going to be called Clown in a Cornfield 2, Friendo Lives, which will focus on the lives of the survivors and how they're dealing with the fame and infamy of the previous book's events. So my pairing is a drink recipe called Clown's Cup, which I found on mbymagazine.com. It calls for two ounces of vodka, three quarters ounce of fresh lime juice, a half ounce of simple syrup, and four cucumber wheels. In a shaker, you're going to muddle the cucumber with a simple syrup, add the remaining ingredients, and shake with ice. It's super refreshing right now as we're heading into the dog days of summer. (laughs) What was that drink called? Clown's Cup. What does that have to do with clowns? It just, it sounds like a vodka tonic or, or something. That... I don't know. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I, I, I like how um, you pair a book from a child's point of view with, with vodka. <laughs> well, you know, no. some clowns. We're dealing with teens. <laughs> You're dealing with children. <laughs> book is The Season of Sticks Malone by Kekla Magoon. The Season of Sticks Malone is a middle grade novel narrated by 10-year-old Caleb. Caleb and his 11-year-old brother Bobby Jean live with their parents in the kind of Indiana town where everyone knows everyone, which their father believes will help protect them from some of the dangers that face African-American boys and men. Caleb, however, longs for more freedom and to break away from the ordinary. When the cool 16-year-old Styx Malone moves into the neighborhood, Caleb and Bobby Jean are excited about the adventures that lie ahead. Styx offers to help Caleb and Bobby Jean unload some illegal fireworks by trading up in an escalator trade. The boys hope to eventually trade for a moped they see in the hardware store window a vehicle which will help them travel beyond their sleepy town. Gradually, Caleb and Bobby Jean realize that Styx's smooth-talking demeanor hides his sorrows, including a life shuttling between different foster homes. While Styx teaches the boys things like how to negotiate and eventually how lucky they are to have two loving parents, the boys teach Styx what it means to have true friendship. One of my favorite aspects of this book is the subtext. As the point of view is filtered through the eyes of a 10-year-old narrator, it may take a while for younger kids to catch on to Styx's situation. But this adult found Styx's stoicism in the face of his hardship absolutely heartbreaking. One powerful example occurs when Caleb asks Styx if he's ever ridden in a limousine. Once, Styx says. The book provides plenty of gentle reminders of the fears that Black parents have about their kids. It's poignant to realize that the boys are so sheltered, they don't really understand why their dad is so protective of them. 
While Styx's troubles and the parents' fears about their children are portrayed in a realistic way, the season of Styx Malone is also a fun summertime book that shows Black kids experiencing the joys of childhood. The boys get in plenty of scrapes that will have readers shaking their heads and wondering just how much trouble they're going to get in. I enjoyed the audiobook version, which is available on Libby and read by Sullivan Jones. If you have any late summer road trips planned, this would be an excellent book for families to listen to together. One of the sweetest moments in the book happens when Styx comes over to the boy's house for a bonfire and weenie roast. Styx has never cooked a hot dog over a fire or eaten s'mores. When he drops his hot dog in the ashes, he's surprised and touched when the boy's dad gives Styx his own hot dog. To take your bonfire from ordinary to extraordinary, try The Campout Cookbook by Marnie Hannell and Jen Stevenson. It offers a dozen different ways to serve your campfire hot dogs and s'mores, including the Hawaii Volcanoes dog with a, quote, wild boar hot dog, teriyaki mayonnaise, grilled pineapple, spicy mango relish on a King's Hawaiian hot dog bun, unquote and the S'morios with Oreo thins, toasted marshmallow, hot fudge sauce, and sprinkles. Honestly, I would just be happy with the King's Hawaiian sweet rolls. (laughs) Those are delicious. (laughs) They are pretty tasty. I can imagine that that would would make a hot dog taste better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. My second choice is The Ballad of Yaya, book one, uh, this one being called Fugue. This colorful graphic novel set in China follows Yaya, the young daughter of a diamond merchant, and uh, Tudo, a little boy from the streets. We start in 1937 Shanghai, being introduced dockside to boisterous uh, Tudo doing a street performance for spare change. When Yaya's father is busy buying her family's boat fare for the next day, she finds her way to a piano on the ship ship dock nearby. While looking for Yaya, her father asks Tudo if he'd seen her nearby, where the driver uh, gives Tudo a large tip after kind of pointing them in the right direction, which uh, Tudo then has to take back to his abusive father. Um... Yaya is found playing the piano inside the stately ship uh, to prevent just listing out all of the book's events. Cause that's how this is actually sounding now that I am reading it. Um, <clears throat> suffice to say the story is full of serendipity that brings Trudeau and Yaya together as they navigate to safety from a suddenly war torn Shanghai. This is just the first volume in a story that paints wartime tragedy from a child's perspective. And Okay, so technically, technically, the bits of narration are from Yaya's pet bird, who is a little kind of comical insert in a kind of scary, sad story. Um, But the frame by frame focus is on the children. I'd say the Ballad of Yaya could be used for either this month's prompt or for October's, which is a book from a non-human perspective. And that's not to say that children are not humans. I mean, the bird is not human. Um, (laughs) We don't currently have this book in our collection, 
but I can put in a request if y'all think it sounds good. I don't know. Would, would either of you read it? It's okay if not. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Put in a request. Maybe. Maybe. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, I will do so. My other suggestion is the novella Night of the Mannequins by Stephen Graham Jones. Told from the perspective of a 16-year-old named Sawyer, this book recounts his experience of playing a last major prank with his friends as they leave adolescence behind and enter their more serious teenage years. They decide to prank Shauna, their friend who works at a local movie theater, by bringing in a mannequin and dressing it up during a showing of a blockbuster superhero movie. This mannequin was a big part of their childhood, according to Sawyer. They found him behind one of their houses in a creek bed and named him Manny, of all things. They dressed him up and traded him between houses until they got older and stopped. Now, they dust him off and bring him out of storage for one last prank. And something goes wrong. Sawyer watches as Manny stands up and walks out of the film on his own. He figures Manny is out for revenge since they forgot about him and left him behind in a garage, and is going to pick them off one by one. Sawyer formulates a plan to save as many people as possible, and sometimes that requires becoming a monster. This one is pretty wild, and is a bit over the top in places, but at its heart is a story about kids growing up and becoming coming into their own, which means their childhood friends, you know, they start drifting away, and, you know, that's kind of... It's kind of sad <laughs> as you form your own identity and move out to your get new friends mm-hmm. and boyfriends and girlfriends and all that. But yeah, Night of the Mannequins. Kind of. I mean, I would expect nothing less from you to them to still manage to <laughs> pick horror novels. Um, but it, it is kind of interesting to think about it from the child's perspective because, I don't know, lots of things are scary when you're a kid. Yeah, I distinctly yeah. remember, you know, having a really bad vision and also being afraid of the dark. And I would just look around my room with my poor vision and see shadows and yeah. shadows. <laughs> you know, and as a teen, you're so tightly wound and things things that aren't really a big deal are huge major deals. Mm-hmm. Um as we see every day here, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, it's, especially in throwing mannequins. <laughs> yeah. Were there evil mannequins in the story? I'm sorry. I, my brain is elsewhere today. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but, oh. um, he, made me think I would the, definitely say he's an unreliable narrator. Okay. He so, might be I, suffering some mental things. That makes for an interesting story, I think. It is. Yeah. It's pretty short. I mean, you could do it in one sitting. Because I would love to pick someone's brain about this one and see if they come. They have the same thoughts after finishing reading it. Well... Listeners, if you read this, um, you can contact Michael um, by emailing us at podcast at justpublive.org. He would love to know your thoughts on it. Yeah. 
or visit me at the reference desk. That's right. Or you can visit him in person at the reference desk. My second book is I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. I Capture the Castle is a classic book originally published in 1948 and reissued in the 1990s. Written by the author of 101 Dalmatians, the book is structured as the 1934 diary of Cassandra Mortmain, a 17-year-old girl who lives in a falling-down English castle with her eccentric and impoverished family. Yes, I know I'm barely squeaking it in with a 17-year-old narrator, but um, given her point of view, I think she still she definitely still qualifies as a child. Sure. Many years ago, Cassandra's father published a successful novel to much critical acclaim, but he's been facing writer's block ever since. Her stepmother, Topaz, is a sometime artist model who likes to commune with nature in the nude. Younger brother Thomas is mostly away at school. Cassandra's older sister Rose is a beauty who is determined to pull herself and her family out of poverty with a good marriage. Cassandra observes them all in her journal, which she hopes will help her become a better writer and allow her to eventually support herself and her family. The Mortmain family's situation changes when their landlord dies, leaving his estate to Simon, an American heir. When Simon and his brother Neil show up to claim Simon's estate, Rose is determined to marry one of them. Cassandra is a charming, witty narrator who describes her quirky family and their crumbling castle with rich details and a strong sense of place. I Capture the Castle is a funny, romantic, coming-of-age story that's perfect for fans of Jane Austen, Nina Stibbe, or Nancy Mitford. In her Guardian column, Novel Recipes, Kate Young offered two recipes inspired by I Capture the Castle. The first, bread, butter, and honey, nods to the pleasures of simpler fare that, that the often hungry Mortmains are grateful for. The second, Cassandra's Midsummer Cake, offers up a dessert that Cassandra is able to make once their fortunes begin to change. We'll link to the recipes on our blog. For more recipes inspired by books, check out Kate Young's book, The Little Library Year, available on Hoopla. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. To submit your entries into the Books and Bites challenge, visit our website at jesspublib.org slash books hyphen bites. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website at doorforadesk.com. 